Narnia is monumentally disparaging of girls and women. It is blatantly racist. One girl was sent to hell because she was getting interested in clothes and boys. This is Pints for Jack, Season 5, Episode 54, Sexism and Racism in Narnia. After Hours with Dr. Devon Brown. Good morning, everyone. Pints for Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. So far this season, we've read Before Loves, spoken to Lewis lovers from diverse religious backgrounds, discussed Lewis's favorite apologetic arguments, and we've just wrapped up The Horse and His Boy. And following on the hooves, so to speak, of our latest Narnia book for this season, today we're discussing the various charges which are laid at Lewis's feet regarding the Narnian Chronicles. Namely, that they are sexist and racist. And our guide through this landmine festooned landscape is Pints with Jack All-Star, Dr. Devon Brown. Dr. Devon Brown is a Lilly Scholar and Professor of English at Asbury University, where he teaches literature, including a course on Lewis and Tolkien. He was the recipient of the Francis White Eubank Award, Asbury's highest honour for teaching. He has a PhD from the University of South Carolina and a Master's degree from the University of Florida. Dr. Brown is a frequent speaker at conferences and college campuses, and an author of award-winning books such as Inside Narnia and A Life Observed, a spiritual biography of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Devon Brown, welcome back to Pines with Jack. Well, it's great to be back. Thank you. How are you doing today? Well, good, you know. Uh, it is springtime, both uh, here and where you are up in Wisconsin, and Kentucky is green and, and lovely and... Um, we managed to finish the semester at Asbury, and so life is a little bit less uh, frantic, which is which is always good, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody in Wisconsin is in just such a great mood now that spring is here. Well, listeners may recall that we had Catherine Langrish on the show last season to talk about her book, wonderfully titled From Spare Oom to Wardrobe. And in it, she claims that the Chronicles of Narnia are racist. And in my interviews, I just generally let my guests talk. But given her comments, and given the Narnia book that we've just read, I wanted to devote an episode to this subject this season. And so I shot you an email after I discovered the transcript of your 2009 keynote address at the C.S. Lewis and Inkling Society Annual Conference, where you answer that question, are the Chronicles of Narnia sexist and racist? So... Are you ready to mount the ramparts of Care Paravel and repel the attacks of northern giants? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I'll just say from the very start, this is one <laughs> of those topics that if you ever have talked to many people, but very few minds are actually changed. I, that's been my experience. Uh, hmm. And there's a number of topics like this. Uh, there's a rather heated topic about whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. And if you ever get in conversation with one of these people, it doesn't really matter what is said. Uh, no minds are changed. There's a lot more heat than light. That said, um, it's possible that your listeners have never heard uh, these claims before, and, and they may come up. And if so, it'll be nice for them to have a few things to say in response if they haven't really thought about it. Um, I will say this. You know, I teach a, a Lewis class at Asbury, and when I bring up sexism and racism in Narnia, there's a big yawn because my <laughs> class goes, well, why are you even talking about this? And I go... Yeah, it'd be like starting a Shakespeare class and, and you know spending a day or two talking about why you think Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. If people 
aren't part of that group that raises these issues, they don't know what's the big deal. And as we'll find, the cases are not particularly well made. There's not a lot factually there to talk about. But that said, uh, your listeners are going to hear this at some place or date. And so it's worthwhile to take the time, look carefully at these issues, uh, and hope that we come up with something helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also helpful for people who have heard somebody make those sexist and racist claims for the first time, that when they Google it, that they come to resources that give an answer. It's always worrying when you hear one side of an argument and then you go looking for another side and it seems that the criticisms have never been engaged with. And that's not a good sign. So I really wanted this episode to be the episode that I can just send people to in future saying, here's a response, have a read, or in this case, have a listen. <laughs> like you say, and it can find an answer, not just a uh, you know 30 second soundbite hmm. with no careful argument, no rational Let's read some text carefully. It's just sort of vitriol. I, I don't know what else to call it. And we'll, we'll hear some of it. But, but you know, I, I have yet to read a carefully laid out case made that they're racist and sexist. Hopefully in this podcast, we can lay out a very careful, thoughtful, careful reading the text that suggests why they're not. And I'll just say this. I think we ought to start by saying, and I'm sure you agree, racism and sexism are very serious charges. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if someone thinks that a, a certain race is superior to another just because you're that race or a gender is certainly inferior to another gender, just because the, those are very serious charges and, and, and really bad things. It's not that we think lightly of these things. It's just we don't find them where other people seem to or claim they seem to. Mm. And if you're going to make those big claims, you better have some really good evidence to back it up. And we'll, we'll assess the quality of that evidence. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say one more thing getting into it. Um, some of the people that we're going to talk about who've made these accusations, are, as far as I can tell, aren't necessarily Christian. And so that they don't have quite the same constraints that, that we might have, which is to respond to someone else's writing or thinking the way you would like them to respond to your writing and thinking, which is not just say things off the top of your head, not make attacks that aren't based in fact and reason. Um, those are things that we would do. Um, Hopefully. It seems like the people we're going to listen to today don't, don't seem to do that very much. Mm. Well, given the subject matter, I have made myself the strongest cup of tea I could find from Taifu. Uh, are you drinking anything? Yeah, I'm following your footsteps. I made a double espresso so that we can last long and get into it and, and, and wade through it and come out the other side. Well, let's toast Patreon supporter Joelle Lowe. Joelle, we toast your good health. May you be found in that great multitude described in the book of Revelation, which no one can count from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. You will stand before the throne and before the Lamb. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, so I had chosen the opening quotation for this episode before I actually read the text of your keynote, but you also reference this same quotation, and it's from Philip Pullman. And although other critics have joined in his chorus, Pullman really seems to be the one who championed the claim that the Narniad is sexist and racist. So he's inevitably going to come up. So before we begin responding to these claims and these questions, who is Philip Pullman? And also, who are some of the other people who have made similar sorts of claims? Yeah, people 
people probably know who Philip Pullman is. Uh, he he did a series of books called uh, His Dark Materials. That's a trilogy. And the first one was made into a film, uh, The Golden Compass, which was actually kind of a big film. And I'll just go on record one that I kind of enjoyed. I thought it was well-made and interesting. Um, <laughs> I think he gets into some 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 trouble with the second and third books. But with the first one... Uh, I thought it was I thought it was fine, and uh, you know that said he he gets lots of press for for knocking uh, Lewis, and so you know one wonders if that's how you do it. Uh, he's also you know anti-Christian, so maybe that's why he does it so strongly. But you know it's monumentally disparaging of girls and women. I mean, I don't know that it's disparaging of all, but it certainly isn't monumentally disparaging of girls and women. Uh, and one girl sent to hell because she was getting, well, you know, Susan isn't sent to hell, as we'll talk about. And it wasn't because she was interested in clothes and boys. So, you know, nothing from those that sentence is right. There's three claims and O for three are correct. And then he's in and out. Um, so he's one, uh, John Goldwaite, who is the natural history of make-believe author. Um, he, he says that his, his real reason for writing these seven novels, sprang from his need to put a woman in her place. J.K. Rowling has a brief attack, right? She wants to say Susan is lost to Narnia because she becomes interested in lipstick, another claim that's not true. Uh, she's become irreligious basically because she found sex. Again, not what the text says. Laura Miller, who seems to both like and hate Lewis at the same time, um, has written a couple pieces about it. Um, and... She talks about wincing when she gets back to reading the racism and sexism and snobbery, don't leave that out, uh, in the Chronicles, and uh, wants to call the White Witch a dominatrix. So there, there's another path we probably won't go down. Ann Wilson, Lewis's biographer, jumps in. Kath Filmer jumps in. Philip Henscher has said things, um, who's, who's actually somewhat of a moderate. And Karen Fry jumps in. And... All these things together uh, may come up. I mean, people read those and without going further, they said, well, I read Philip Pullman said it's racist or, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling says it's sexist. I, I guess it must be, right? And it, it'll be good for people to be able to say, well, is it? Let's talk about it. Why would we say it is or why would we say it isn't? And in your speech, you pointed out that there are some real commonalities which we see when people attack Narnia. So before we get to their particular claims, what are the sorts of things that we see in in these disparaging comments, in these hit pieces against Lewis and his Narniad? Yeah, and I'll say the, the I don't know, seven or eight people we mentioned typically are not writing a, a whole article about it. They're just making a comment. They're being interviewed. And so they they'll offer a sentence. And so I, I call what they do sort of hit and run, right? It's not a full-fledged or fair investigation. It's not what we would call a careful reading. They never cite anything. They just come up with a, a quick para paraphrase that's typically, as I started to mention before, inaccurate, uh, as we'll see with what they've said about Susan. And, of course, they ignore all the things that may be suggesting the exact opposite is true. Um, I mean... To say they're disparaging of women, I, I would have said most people who read the Chronicles of Narnia find the female protagonists quite competent, quite positive. They seem to be the exact kind of protagonist these people would really like if they found it in some other book besides Lewis. And, and perhaps the, the best thing to say is 
they like to make pronouncements, but they're not particularly convincing ones. Hmm. Your point about disparaging of women is is well taken. And by that former guest that I mentioned earlier, when Catherine Languish came on to talk about spare um to wardrobe, she said that she liked a lot of the female characters and she rejected the charge of sexism. So it's also not, uh, it's not criticism across the board. Uh, and when I was reading your keynote, one other thing that I've noticed from a lot of these attacks is that consistent standards are not used. There's, there seems to be a particular ire directed towards the Chronicles of Narnia that if the same sort of logic was applied to other books and even sometimes to their own books, I think they would end up in real trouble. Yeah, there are plenty of fairy tales. If, if we if we jump ahead to the second half of our talk, the racism thing, where there'll be uh, antagonists from a distant land, whether they're from the far north, uh, like they are in the Golden Compass, or from the far east or far south, where where there'll be a sort of a, a whole fairy tale country that's portrayed as the antagonists, and because they're from a different region, they'll be portrayed as antagonists. Uh, Ursula Le Guin from Wizard of Earthsea has has a group of people to the north that are sort of like Vikings. They're called the Kargs. And no one goes after these people. So, you know, double standard is not a bad thing to talk about. People have different standards for the, the authors that uh, politically align with them a little bit differently than, than authors that may not politically align with them. I'll give you another weird one. Is there's a history of, of writers. And I, I was invited to go to a conference in, in London back in, 2000, quite a while ago, for the 50th anniversary of Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. And I met some just lovely British scholars. And uh, over and over, I met people who had loved the Narnia books as a child. Later in life, they learned that Lewis was a Christian and that he included his Christian worldview or Christian point of view in those books. And so now they hated those books, even though they still loved them or they loved everything about them. And so it's this sort of odd thing that they do. They think they hate Christianity, but not this form of it. But since this is a form of Christianity, they must hate these books, which they, well, in fact, don't hate. And I'm not a good person to understand because they obviously work well for me. But I, I found that sort of, I don't know, schizophrenic way of looking at these books. They, they like them and they like everything in them, but they don't like them because of this other thing. And talk about the double standard is, and you, you know, I'm not going to bring this up because it just gets too heated, but would they, would they, uh, sort of blackball or criticize a Jewish person who included a, a Jewish point of view in their faith or uh, an Islam person who had a Muslim point of view in their faith or Buddhists. I mean, like you said, they, they, they seem to be inconsistent. That's probably the nicest way to talk about it. And they would do well to take a leaf out of Lewis's book. There were lots of books that he read that he liked parts of them and could praise parts of them and the bits that he didn't like, you know, spat out the bones. But let's start with the big one, because one of the most common criticisms of Narnia is regards to the fate of Susan Pevensey in The Last Battle. And we haven't actually read this book yet on the podcast. That'll be in season seven. So spoiler warnings if anybody hasn't read them and are, and are waiting to read them along with Matt. Uh, if you would uh, like to skip over the section, just jump to the next chapter section on your podcast player. And we will definitely return to this subject when we read that book. I'm planning on interviewing my friend Kat Coffin, who has an epic Twitter rant on the subject. But in order to address the criticism of the Chronicles, we should talk about what actually happens in the last battle. So I'm actually going to read the text. 
because that's really important. <laughs> and, and, and then we'll ask some questions. My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace. And whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, oh, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Oh, Susan, said Jill. She's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said Lady Polly. I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can, and then stop there for as long as she can. Okay, so that was the text. What do people claim about it, and why might that not be correct? Yeah, so so the very first thing you read, David, is uh, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. I mean, what a profound statement. This is someone who went to Narnia, was a queen in Narnia, went twice, knew Aslan personally, and is no longer a friend of Narnia. She's not there because she doesn't want to be there. She's not there because uh, she's taken an interest in other things. Lewis would say she's taken something that should be first and made it secondary, and she's taken something that should be secondary. And what is that? Uh, Nylon's lipsticks and invitations is sort of uh, all succumb under an umbrella of vanity. She likes being popular and her popularity and getting invited to parties and being thought of as, as beautiful has become the most important thing in her life. And so Eustace, who I think has particular insight, you know, every, every so often Lewis picks someone in, on purpose to kind of say some things. Whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Well, you listeners who have got to meet the Green Colonel Lady, right, uh, the Green Witch, that's exactly what she wants to say about Narnia when she's trying to put them under a spell. Uh, oh, you've uh, made such funny games, and that's fine, this world of make-believe, it's all good for you when you're children, but isn't it time to grow up? And here's Susan saying words very similar to that, that, that this idea of, of belief in Narnia and Aslan is... Well, something childish, something for children, something, you know, that you grow out of. And so she's, she's because of that, she's not on the train. little spoiler alert for everybody. She's not on the train that has the train wreck that sends them all to Narnia at the end. And so she's not sent to hell, uh, as, as you'll talk about in a bit, I'm sure. Uh, Lewis gets asked about her all the time. And at one point he'll say, look, she's, she's still alive in her world. And, uh, you know, perhaps she'll get to Narnia in her own way. That's his exact words. So he's not sent to hell. And it's not because she's interested in sex, clothes, or boys. It's because she's not interested in Narnia. And, you know, that's a huge saying that, that, that if we choose, we can choose to ignore an experience that we've had with God. That we can just say, oh, that was not, that was something when I was younger. That was a phase I went through. It's, it's a pretty profound statement that Lewis makes. Now, the fact that it, it it's um, a female, uh, there'll be people who say, well, the, you know, uh, of the four main protagonists and all the other ones, there's only one who isn't there at the end. She happens to be a female, so we must be sexist. Well, this idea of, of someone who happens to be a female, therefore sexist, just doesn't work for me. And I, I get part, part of one of the things you might say is, well, what do you mean by sexist? And trust me, there's many different definitions. So I'll give you some that probably... 
I don't subscribe to. Uh, I wouldn't say an author is sexist if he doesn't have the exact same number of male and female characters, right? Some people want to do that. Uh, Lewis is pretty close. That be said, I, I think he's actually a lot more even than other characters. I mean, from the, the two and two that go on the first time and then often in pairs of two, uh, whether it's Diggory and Polly or Eustace and Jill, uh, he's actually pretty close. But that doesn't, what I, you know, what do you mean by sexist? The idea that someone is inherently superior or inferior based simply on their gender, nothing else. Well, um, so, so Susan is not there at the end, not because she's a girl, it's because she's quit believing in Narnia and, and has nothing to do with her gender as far as I can tell. And one thing that you said in your keynote refuting this idea that it's just about clothes is you see other characters enjoying clothes. Lucy and Jill, it's mentioned various times how much they enjoy what they're wearing. And some people even have trouble with the fact that it's Susan, but Lucy also has struggles with vanity, such as in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And this isn't even uh, an exclusively male vice. The, the best example, I think, is Uncle Andrew. In The Magician's Nephew, he is described as being as vain as a peacock. And in the book that we've just read, The Horse and His Boy, vanity is Bree's main vice. And in a superb parallel, it almost keeps him from entering Narnia. He doesn't want to enter in without his, his nice tail because it's been cut short, which I would also point out is an echo of The Great Divorce, when, when people would prefer to hang on to their hellish souvenirs rather than actually enter heaven. But again, Susan hasn't died yet. That's why she's not there. <laughs> yeah, and the two you mentioned are great examples, suggesting that one need not be uh, female to be vain. Uh, Uncle Andrew is way more vain than Susan, as is Bree. And yet both of them have a, have a, a reversal at the end. Bree's is obvious. He's, he's shown he's silly. He has a confrontation with Aslan. And I'll just say this. I don't know if people have carefully read The End of the Magician's Nephew, but Uncle Andrew goes to live with Diggory in the big house, and in the last couple pages, it says he becomes quite a nice and quite a different person. So there's two vain people, uh, both of them males, who have a change of heart. You know, it's not the worst sin in the world. Uh, matter of fact, I would, I would guess, like you say, Lucy's a bit guilty of it. And, and so I, there's lots of hope for Susan. Uh, okay, the other thing I want to say is, is let's do some, some careful looks. I've got, I've got it written out here, so I've got a page right here. Um, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy thought she was the most fortunate girl in the world. She woke each morning to see the reflection of the sunlit water dancing on the ceiling of her cabin and looked around at all the nice new things she had gotten in the Lone Islands. Sea boots and buskins, cloaks and jerkins and scarves, right? In the silver chair, after they get back to England, uh, Jill doesn't get rid of her fine Narnia clothes. She, quote, smuggled hers home and wore them at a fancy dress ball the next holidays. Lucy and Erebus, in Horse and His Boy, go to Erebus' bedroom, and they talk about clothes. And, you know, Lewis, Lewis makes it clear, and that's just fine, right? Anything that's secondary that stays secondary is actually meant to be enjoyed. Anything that's secondary that becomes a first thing uh, gets in the way of all sorts of good things. And the other thing I've heard people refer to with regards to this passage is about the idea of being grown up. And we, we heard with some of the critics that, what Lewis doesn't like is the fact she's growing up and becoming a woman. But there's so many counterexamples to that that shows that Lewis has got no problem with people growing up and getting married. You know, we've got lots and lots of married couples throughout uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. That it's, it's not simply about becoming an adult and all that that entails. 
Um, there's actually a line from from Lewis where he says, um, I think it's in in his in his essay about fairy tales. He talks about uh, when he when he grew up, um, he put away childish things. One of which was always trying so very hard to be so grown up. Yeah, and I'll jump in and, and say this: we shouldn't be surprised that Lewis's stories for young people feature mainly young people, right? This is how these things work. Matter of fact, one of the biggest criteria for putting a book in the adolescent lit section is its protagonist, you know, an adolescent, right? That's why lots of books that were written for adults now get put in that section. Roar of the Flies gets put in that section. Huckleberry Finn gets put in that section. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird gets put in that section because they have young protagonists. Well, if you're actually intentionally writing books primarily geared toward young people, that's what you want to do. You want to have uh, young people that your characters can identify with. So so for someone to criticize that, you know, all these young people, we don't see them growing up and getting married. Well, it's because it's a story for young people. That said, Lewis isn't against one. And one of my favorite ones, and I'm going to grab my book here because it's one of my very favorite ones. Um, it's in The Magician's Nephew. And King Frank gets uh, drawn into Narnia, right? And, and, and Aslan says, says, does this land please you? Oh, it's a fair treat. You could do this better than me, David. <laughs> it's a fair treat, sir, said the cabbie. I sound like Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> Would you like to live here always? Well, you see, sir, I'm a married man, said the cabbie. If my wife was here, neither of us would ever want to go back to London, I reckon. I mean, what a, an amazing thing to say about marriage and your wife. He's there in Nardia. And he says, you like to stay here? He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I'd like to. This is really, he says, well, I'm a married man. And, it, and I'm, I can't say, I'm not staying here if my wife's not. I'll go back to the poor side of London and drive a cab the rest of my days because I've got to be with my wife. I mean, if that isn't a great statement, of course, we don't have to make it to the magician's nephew. We meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver right from the very start, a very uh, kind of conventional married couple that seemed to be fine, right? And then, you know, talk about getting interested in uh, the opposite sex, Caspian and the daughter of Armandu. By the way, we should just say it. Lewis should have given her a name. I, I don't know how they missed that. <laughs> if, if you ever write about it or talk about it, at some point you just... Can't say the daughter of Ramandu one more time. Anyway, that he's interested in her and that's why he's going to go back. And then there's a whole story that she's involved in and she never has a name. And then, of course, Shasta and Erebus, you know, they sort of are, are they're sort of like the Beatrice and, and Benedict uh, from Shakespeare, <laughs> where they sort of argue and argue with each other and get married in the end. Right. And that's a great one. And of course, Brie and Gwyn get married, not to each other. They didn't have to get married, but they get married. So, you know, people getting married doesn't seem to be something Lewis is afraid of or doesn't want to do. It's just these are books for young people, so it's not going to be center stage, but it happens, right? So to recap, it's about vanity more than anything else. Lewis doesn't think that that's an exclusively female vice. He has got no animus against people growing up and getting married. Lots of examples of that. Susan isn't there because she wasn't on the train, therefore not in the accident, therefore not dead. And it's been from her own choices. She is making second things, first things. She doesn't believe in Narnia anymore. And there was one other point that you made in your speech, which I really liked, about the fact that her story isn't finished. And you, you referenced it earlier about Lewis in his letters, saying that you know she was a rather silly, conceited girl, but there's plenty of time for her to mend. Because children wrote to Lewis saying, what happened to Susan? And he says that perhaps she'll get to Aslan's country in the end in her own way. 
And in your keynote, you referenced the Dawn Shredder and you explained possibly how that might happen. Yeah. You know, there's that lovely line, perhaps in the top five lines of, of Narnia, right? Oh, but, but Aslan, it isn't you. We're going to miss you. Well, I'm in your world too. Oh, really? Yes, but there I'm known by another name. And, you know, I'll be telling you all the time how to get into my country. And what exactly that means, Lewis wisely just leaves understated, unstated, other than he, we, we meant, we're meant to believe Aslan. He's telling her all the time. And certainly he's doing the same for all of the characters that we meet. Right, all the bullies from Experiment House. Mm. He's telling them all the time how to get into his country. I, I, you know, people. We could do another one on corporal punishment in Narnia. That'd be another one that people get, <laughs> you know, irate about. And and I would say this. I would say, remember how sad Eustace was, you know, and had no friends. As for his friends, he had none. What did they call me? He had none. Right. Well, the bullies at, at Experiment House don't really seem to have any friends. Well, except for Aslan, and Aslan loves them enough to. Do whatever it takes to bring them out of their bully, bullying. I mean, why can't he just have them get kicked out and go somewhere? Well, he wants them punished enough that they may take notice of their pain and that they may hear uh, through the pain, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, uh, a different kind of message. Because if we don't feel sorry for him, he feels sorry for for those bullies at Experiment House. And, and I get that, that Susan's a protagonist, but you know, there's a long list of people who aren't there at Narnia. We don't see Mrs. McCready there right? We don't see Lucy's friend, Marjorie Preston. That doesn't mean she's not getting there. And I think for your friend, your, your audience, we ought to read this. This is from January 22nd, 1957, Letters to Children. Dear Martin, the books don't tell us what happened to Susan. She is left and al alive in this world at the end, having by then turned into a rather silly, conceited young woman. And, and we've talked about that. What does that mean? That means that she's she looks on her time in Narnia as a silly game and what's really important is those invitations and being popular. But there is plenty of time for her to mend, and perhaps she will get to Aslan's country in the end in her own way. You know, not cited by any critics we mentioned. <laughs> well, let's move on from Susan to another common complaint about the Narnian Chronicles is that there are many sexist remarks found in the books. What do you say to that? Here's a good one. Uh, the critics who say that are exactly right. And here's an area we'd agree. And we could give probably a longer <laughs> list than they would have. Um, the only thing is that we're going to disagree with them about whether they're terrible or not. And let's be honest. I don't think there's any character uh, from High King Peter down to whoever else you want to talk about who doesn't make mistakes, is an imperfect person, doesn't have a character arc. And when they're young, they say and do all sorts of things that, well, maybe they ask apologies for later or they regret. And so these things that are said by both female and male characters, these sexist remarks that we can go through, rather than having them suggest Lewis himself is sexist, are a part of his characterization. These are the exact kind of things these characters would say at this point, right? Uh, and, you know, there's as many on each side. So Mrs. Beaver says, don't stand there talking till the tea gets cold, just like men. Now, You've never seen that in any article about how Lewis is so sexist toward men, right? It's, they, they just ignore that one, right? <laughs> or or um, uh, Edmund will say, uh, that's in Prince Caspian, that's the worst of girls. They never carry a map in their head. And Lucy snaps back, that's because our heads have something inside them. So you have a, a double sexist thing, you know. <laughs> and, and then Lucy, again, uh, talks when, when Caspian and Edmund fall under the spell, 
That's the worst of doing things with boys. You're all such swaggering, bullying idiots. Well, you know, that's kind of a broad brush to paint men with. Certainly a sexist comment. Absolutely a sexist comment. Uh, a sexist comment that would suggest Lewis is sexist against men if it wasn't a character saying it rather than him saying it. And let's do one more. Girls never know, want to know about anything but gossip and rot about people getting engaged. Diggory says, right about as he's about to ring that bell, right, and cause all this trouble, right? And she says, how exactly like a man, you know? <laughs> so those comments are there and they're they're absolutely sexist. And like other behaviors, they're what imperfect people do. And, you know, I talked to a friend of mine who's got kids and he says, well, I don't know if I want my kids to be reading that stuff because, you know, it's sort of normalizes it or or gives it a certain kind of authority. And I would say, well, what about all the other horrible things these people do? I mean, watching Edmund betray his brothers and sisters, does that give them authority because it's in a book? Mm. Uh, I wouldn't say so. And then the other thing I would say is, man, why don't you read these things with your kids and talk about them here? Because all those things we said, both from males and females, are going to be set out in the schoolyard, on the playground, and here we can at least talk about them. Yeah, they're not endorsements. This is the thing that kills me. It's like people that read the Bible and say, well, this bad thing happened in the Bible, or this bad person said this bad thing. It's Just because it's recorded doesn't necessarily mean that it's endorsed, particularly when they come from the antagonist. But even when they come from the people that you would generally regard as the hero or the person whose side we're probably meant to take, it's sometimes a low moment. For example, my namesake in the Bible, King David, said and did lots of great things, said and did some less good things. But just because he said and did them doesn't mean that we're meant to emulate those as well. We're meant to be able to recognize that what is happening here, what is being said here, what is being done here is not good. And one of the things that made me laugh was when I was assembling my list of all the sexist things I could find in Narnia. In The Horse and His Boy, you have a man say, she's as good as a man, or at any rate, as good as a boy. Which is funny because it's an echo of something that Lewis said to his future wife and she pulled him up on it. When he praised his wife Joy for her manly virtues, she asked him how he would like her to praise him for his womanly virtues. Yeah. And the, the list we just went down are sexist comments made by what we would call good characters. Now, soon we'll get into uh, another way to, to portray sexism as wrong. It, besides having them be said by imperfect good characters and not to be emulated, is to have them really uh, embraced by the bad guys, bad characters. But yeah, he has good characters do many things that are wrong. And I don't think it's too tricky to say yes. And when they say that and snap at each other, Lewis isn't endorsing that. He doesn't endorse this any more than he endorses any of the other mistakes. And, and often he'll have someone like Jill want to apologize for these kind of snappings and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the sexist remarks, they're not endorsements, and these are characters, these are regular people who are works in progress. But one comment in particular really irks some critics, and it's what Father Christmas says to Susan and Lucy when he gives them their gifts. He says to Lucy, the dagger is to defend yourself at great need, for you also are not to be in the battle. Why, sir, said Lucy, I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. That is not the point, he said. But battles are ugly when women fight. And it's that, it's that last comment there that, that bothers people. So what is it with St. Nick? Is Santa sexist? 
Well, look, I'm going to come out and say that this is a bit problematic, but maybe not always for exactly the reasons these critics say. I don't know how old we're supposed to think Lucy is. I mean, at one point, Walter Hooper suggests he's got a list of of the ages of the kids at each book, but the problem is they seem older than they normally would be. So I don't know. Lucy is sort of a, a seven-year-old-ish. Maybe she's six, maybe she's eight, but let's just say she's that young. And then <laughs> Father Christmas says battles are ugly when women fight. Well, Lucy's not a woman, right? She's a girl. And should he have said girls? Did he mean girls there? And then I'll give the other one. He says, you are also, he's said this to Susan, not to be in the battle. The one that's coming up, I think, in a day or two, if you read carefully. And so later on, we'll see Lucy in a battle, uh, full-fledged in a battle. And we'll see Jill later on being a major part of a battle. Matter, matter of fact, one of the first uh, shots in a battle that is quite ugly. So this is a bit problematic. And, and, and let's go back to why. Because unlike when uh, Lucy snaps at Edmund or Edmund snaps at Lucy or Jill snaps at Diggory, this is Father Christmas, who seems to be sort of, well, a spokesman kind of guy, right? When he says something, it carries the weight of maybe this is what, he's a representative of Aslan. He's speaking for Lewis here. Um, so yeah, it is a little tricky. So, so there's a little bit to said for it. One is, is you're not to be in the battle. And perhaps because you're going to be far weaker, there's going to be no other bad little six, six-year-old girls for you to fight against. Right? You're going to have to fight a, you know, a giant or something, right? And, and we see this a little bit when, when Shasta goes to war, right? To, to make it equally gender, the hermit is watching in his pool, and it's, he says it's madness to send a child to battle uh, because there's no child to fight against. They've not been trained at all. They're out of their depth, right? And, and you know, I think there was a children's crusade that ended up in a huge hmm. disaster. Yep. Uh, these children were not equipped for something like that. Anyway... Lewis does a great job of portraying battle. Uh, there's a lovely scene, uh, F- Peter's first battle in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and there's another lovely one when Edmund is, it, oh, at the last battle, where, where we're waiting for that line of Kalorman to come. Battles are always ugly in, in the Narnia books, dreadfully so. And so in, in some ways, the problem here is when he says battles are ugly when women fight, he should have just said battles are ugly when anybody fights. And Lewis himself knew that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I don't know. Anybody could deny that battles are ugly when anybody fights. And maybe that's what he, he might have meant. He, he certainly didn't mean that Lucy wasn't brave enough to be in battle. I, I wonder how Lewis wrote pretty fast, as you and I know. But I wonder how much he sort of stopped and thought about what names to give everybody. You know, Peter the, Mag- uh, Peter the Magnificent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Susan, Su- Susan the Gentle. That's a good one, right? Lucy, what did Lucy Did it just jump to his mind? Yeah. Lucy the Valiant, mm. right? The brave one, the courageous one. What a name. And again, I, I don't know. I, I would have thought people would have been thrilled to say, yeah, there's many different kinds of bravery and courage. Courage in battle is just one and perhaps not the most important one. Being willing to go against what her brothers and sister want to do. They're going to think her stupid when she insists on following Asim, but she's going to go, I have to go whether you go with me. Here's the youngest kid in the family saying that to, you know, High King Peter. It's a certain kind of valiance that that I really admire. Um, Anyway, when she says, I think I could be brave enough, that's not the point Father Christmas says. He doesn't question her bravery. Readers don't question her bravery. Matter of fact, she even thinks she could be brave enough and she could be, Um, but she's not supposed to be in this battle. Maybe a later one. 
And that is an interesting turn of phrase when he talks about the battle. It's, it's referring to this particular one, because as we find out later in the story, both of the girls are going to be doing a different kind of service to Aslan himself directly, and they are going to be going with him right up into the belly of the beast. You want bravery, I think, getting anywhere near that stone table with the White Witch and all of her minions around it, that's going to take some bravery. And I do want to underscore the point that you made about uh, war and that Lewis knew war. I dug out a letter that he wrote to Don B. Griffith, and he says, My memories of the last war, so that's World War I, haunted my dreams for years. And he actually says, I think death would be much better than to live through another war. He knew the horrors of war, and maybe at times he romanticizes it a little bit, but I, I think if he had thought for one second that those that he loved back home were going to be joining him in the trenches, I don't think anything would have turned his stomach more than the thought of uh, the females in his life being with him on the front line, in the trenches, and the filth, and the death, and the decay. Yeah, and, and let me read, since we're doing this today, uh, read specifically from Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, Peter's First Battle. It all happened too quickly for Peter to think about it at all. This is him fighting the wolf, right? This is his first battle. He had just time to duck down and plunge his sword as hard as he could between the brute's forelegs into its heart. Then came a horrible, confused moment, like something in a nightmare. He was tugging and pulling, and the wolf seemed neither alive nor dead, and its bared teeth knocked against his forehead, and everything was blood and heat and hair. A moment later, he found that the monster lay dead and he had drawn his sword out of it and was straightening his back and rubbing the sweat off his face and out of his eyes, and he felt tired all over. Then after a bit, Susan came down the tree. She and Peter felt pretty shaky when they met, and I won't say there wasn't kissing and crying on both sides. No cheering, right? No cheering, you know, none of that heroic music. You know, this was pretty grim. One of the points that you make in your keynote is that over the course of the Chronicles, Lewis's exact position on the role of young girls and women, particularly in battle, is not clear. Yeah, and if we take a careful look at the horse and his boy, uh, Shasta in Narnia, we have this lovely picture. Uh, There's two uh, characters riding chargers. One is King Edmund, and the other is a fair-haired lady with a merry face who wore a helmet and a mail shirt, and carried a bow across her shoulder with a quiver full of arrows, right? So this girl who is not intended to be in that battle certainly marches off to battle this time, and um, when Corn complains that Lucy's allowed to join, he's told the queen's grace will do as she pleases. (laughs) And so, you know, that, that, that point about the first battle or whether Father Christmas is speaking for Lewis if he is speaking for Lewis, Lucy, Lucy has overcome Lewis's objections later on and marches off to war no matter what the author seems to want. And in Prince Caspian, Susan is involved in the skirmishes and her archery in particular is praised. Yeah, and not only is her archery praised, but her readiness. I mean, Peter, perhaps the magnificent and the fighter of them all, is sort of stands frozen. And the next thing you know, he hears a, a twang and she's not only shot her bow, strung and shot it, but been smart enough to hit uh, one of the telmarines on the uh, helmet so that he drops the dwarf. Uh, so she responds quicker than he does there. And, and and that brings up another thing. So so Father Christmas comes and gives gifts to three children because, uh, you know, Edmund's not there, so he never gets a gift. Um, so Lucy gets this healing cordial 
and, and Peter doesn't. And these people who complain about sexism never say, aha, Lewis is saying that males can't be healers or doctors, right? <laughs> or, or archers, right? They never, they never complain about that. They only complain that, that Lucy wasn't able to fight in the next battle. Uh, she's only given a dagger, and it's for her to use only in defense because he's not intending her to be there. So, so you could call some of this individualism. There's this lovely moment where each person in Narnia is called to do what he does best. Um, you, we see that when Aslan leads frozen statues out of the witch's castle. We've got strong ones who can carry slower ones. We've got ones who can kind of smell and find out where the battle is up in front. Each one's called on to do what they do best. And if Lucy is... Her be first best destiny is to be a healer, which seems fine with me. Maybe Lewis isn't saying that all women are supposed to do that. I mean, take a look in Jill at the last battle, which is another great depiction of the ugliness of war, right? Tyrion Barry barely had time to give his orders. Out of the left, Jill, try and shoot all you may before they reach us. Then we see it from Eustace's point. Eustace stood with his heart beating terribly. He heard a twang and zip on his left and one Kalorming fell, and then twang and zip again, on, and the satire was done. Well done, daughter. So a satyr and a Kalorman are killed. Lewis could, by, by Jill, right? That's her, her bow that shot them. Well done, my daughter. Eustace couldn't remember what happened in the next two minutes. It was all like a dream, the sort you have when your temperature is over 100. Anyway, the defeated Kalormans go back, and the bull is down, shot through the eye, by an arrow from Jill. Battles are ugly when anybody fights. So, to recap, there's never a question that Lucy isn't brave enough. She's eventually called Lucy the Valiant. Lewis knew what war was like and knew it was hell. And over the course of Chronicles, we see girls and women in battle in different regards. But just to round off this section, I'm just going to say personally, I just stand with Father Christmas. War is horrible and the thought of a woman being caught up in it just turns my stomach yeah. but another comment that some people don't like isn't from a character this time it's from the narrator at the end of the silver chair when it's noted that the head of experiment house was a woman let me just read the section and when the head who was by the way a woman came running out to see what was happening and when she saw the lion and the broken wall and caspian and jill and eustace whom she quite failed to recognize, she had hysterics. After that, the head's friends saw that the head was of no use as a head, so they made her an inspector to interfere with other heads. And when they found that she wasn't much good even at that, they got her into Parliament, where she lived happily ever after. So, isn't this a bit sexist? Why did the head have to be a woman? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought this up. Because the head, well, has to be either a man or a woman, right? And so this character happens to be a woman, which doesn't make Lewis sexist because she was a woman. No more than uh, Diggory has an uncle and aunt, right? And his aunt doesn't play a big part, Aunt Leticia. But she seems quite nice and tries to protect Diggory from his crazy uncle. But his uncle Diggory is, well, quite evil. I mean, he's, he, Lewis ha gives him some jokey lines. But beneath the jokes, he's quite, quite sinister. Well, the fact that the uncle happens to be a male and he's the bad guy and the aunt is quite nice and she's the good guy doesn't make Lewis sexist. And so this head here, who happens to be a woman, uh, doesn't make Lewis sexist. Here's what I don't find. I, I like that you read the whole passage. And then when I read the passage, I don't see anything there where Lewis is saying, and because she was a woman, <laughs> she was inferior or a wacky person. 
She just happens to be a woman, as she might be at um, a co-ed school. She might be a headmistress there. And, you know, we don't know that Experiment House turns out to be quite a good school and probably gets a new head. And we don't know whether the next head was a headmistress or a headmaster. And Lewis seems to suggest by not telling us that it doesn't matter. Um, people read this and think, oh, yes, uh, mixed gender schooling, very progressive. Lewis isn't going to like that. Well, at the end of the story, Experiment House becomes quite a good school and it remains, um, you know, co-gender. Uh, there's boys and girls as students there, and it seems to be just fine. So this is a great illustration. And I'll just say this. There are plenty of examples where uh, an author will have a character who's portrayed as crazy or evil. And if they're crazy or evil, the implication, if they're because of their gender, well, then that's something we should look at. So take a look at Frankenstein, right? Mary Shelley writes this book. And Victor Frankenstein, if you're people don't know some days, Frankenstein is the name of the doctor who creates this unnamed creature who's actually quite lovely, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Mary Shelley's not sexist for having a, a male protagonist who's vile. He needs to be male or female. He happens to be male, but he, she's not vile because he's male. He's a male who is vile. Here's a headmistress who's a, a bit of a nutter, but not because she's a woman. It's because she's a nutter. So, <laughs> and and if we, I'll get that. If we didn't have other bad characters, if all, if every single bad character was of one gender, then we have something to talk about. But Lewis is pretty equal opportunity when he comes to to bad characters. Uh, he's got you know all different kinds from all different races and all different genders. Um, so this is a great illustration of saying if you've got someone portrayed unsympathetically and negative, they happen to be a woman, that doesn't make you sexist. As long as you've got other women who are portrayed positively and other males who are portrayed negatively. What do you think? There was a question I actually was going to ask you later about Horsner's Boy, and it sort of falls in the same category. I think if Lewis was writing this today, I think this passage would be a little bit different. The mentioning the fact that she was a woman, I would just say is unnecessary and could very easily be cut. The question of gender didn't need to be mentioned at all. I would say for me, alarms go off my head a little bit because of the era that I'm living in. Some of the sensitivities that we have today, we are hyper aware of some things that an earlier author just wouldn't have even have thought that this could be, as we would say, triggering for somebody. And I would say that there are a couple of things in this passage which could be triggering. The way that the head is identified as a woman, you know, the fact that it's a parenthetical insertion, who was, by the way, a woman. And also the use of the word hysterics. Oh, this is the trope of the hysterical woman. So I think that had Lewis been writing that today, I think he might have adjusted his language a little bit. But I'm still with you. We have bad characters of both genders. So you can't just say, ah, because of this case, this has to be sexist. Yeah, no, those are those are good points. And that phrase, I'm going to agree 100% with you. And then the head, who was, by the way, I can read it as bad as you want, who was, by the way, a woman. A woman. Came running. So, <laughs> so having said that, I wonder if he's doing that, uh, and, and authors need to do this, to not let you picture somebody who then becomes confusing. Um, and then the head, who, leave that off, came running out to see what was happening. And when she saw the lion, now, you and I could have left that parenthetical thing. I just said that when she saw the lion, and it would have been a little bit less there. That said, I'm afraid Lewis is thinking that people are going to get confused that when she saw the lion, well, the head, and, and maybe the problem is they weren't using headmistress at that point. They were using head. And I imagine they weren't that common. But yeah, you're, I would have I found a different way. I, w I wouldn't have had a trouble with him keeping her. 
uh, I might have, like you say, written a little bit slightly differently. So you couldn't, mm. if you wanted to, who was, by the way, a woman, right? <laughs> and you can't do that. And then maybe, and maybe I would have shown her replacement, who was a, another great head, who also was a woman. Um, mm-hmm. that, that would have been another nice way out of it. To make, to make it clear, he wasn't doing that. Mm. But we would do that because we would want to make it clear yeah. that, that it wasn't because she was a woman that this previous head was terrible. Yeah. We have that in our heads. And so we, we would we would do the extra work to make sure that was clear. Yeah. But if that isn't on your radar, if you're not thinking that that's how your initial readers are going to read this, you don't put it in. Yeah. Now, earlier you said that critics often fail to mention the positive case for Narnia. When they're calling it sexist and racist, they often leave a bunch of stuff out that runs counter to their claims. So with regards to issues of gender, in what ways is Narnia rather progressive? Yeah, I mean, if if we hadn't mentioned that uh, half a dozen or so critics, people might be thinking, gosh, I think these are the kind of uh, female protagonists that people would just love, right? You know, Lucy and Jill and Erebus and, and Polly, right? They're strong, they're confident. Even their criticism uh, about Susan, you'd think there's a certain kind of feminist critic that would applaud Lewis for for saying there's more to women than just lipstick, nylons, and invitations. There, there's got to be more important things than this. And here he's trying to say those those are silly things, and that's not what makes up female identity or feminine identity. So yeah, you know, Susan is not just good with a bow and arrow and initiative, but she's also Susan the gentle, which again I applaud. There's lots of virtues out there, and the virtue of gentleness is one that we should all aspire to, male and female, right? Then there's that marvelous scene where, where Lucy in Prince Caspian first is willing to go against her older siblings and do what Aslan wants. And then in the next book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, she's ready to go up into the spooky magician's house before we know anything, all by herself. And uh, the rest of the crew was kind of worried. Oh, and she said, no, I'll just do it. I can do this. That's fine. There's a lovely line uh, where Polly at the end of Magician's Nephew, which I love, learns to ride and swim and milk and bake and climb. Uh, About six different things that she does, five or six, a lovely mixture, right? Which suggests she can do all sorts of things that she likes. Uh, She doesn't just ride and swim and climb. She also may like to bake if she wants. I mean, she's interested in all sorts of things. And then, of course, Jill, uh, she's been told by the king of Narnia, you wait here. And all of a sudden, (laughs) she sees this opening and sneaks into the stable. And without getting anyone's permission, asking anybody, can I do this, goes in and rescues Puzzle all on her own. And to her credit, a little bit earlier, uh, they kind of are getting lost in the the brush going somewhere. And Tyrion recognizes that unlike girls who don't have a compass in their head, she's got a great compass in her head. Mm -hmm. And he puts her in charge of leading them. Not Eustace, and wait a minute, not even himself, not even the local king of Narnia, the last king of Narnia, puts her in charge of doing that sort of thing. And, you know, to go from there to monumentally disparaging of females, I'm just like, come on, guys. If if you want us to take you seriously, you have to give it a serious reading, not skip over all of these positive things that that if you were sitting here, if we had a third screen on our window, uh, you would agree that those are all great portraits uh, of female protagonists. You would like your daughter to read and emulate. You'd like her to be like Lucy and and Jill and Polly and Erebus, right? Those are all great models for girls. It's almost like an inductive fallacy. 
where they're looking at the instances where women and female characters are portrayed in a negative light and assuming that that is therefore universal throughout Lewis, rather than actually looking at the data and seeing, you know what, it's actually a really mixed bag. As you say, Lewis is equal opportunities when it comes to good and bad characters, regardless of whatever their physical characteristics are. And, and one of the things that you pointed out, which I really like, is that feminine things aren't rejected. People who know me know that I couldn't stand Captain Marvel and I absolutely loved Wonder Woman. And it was because I felt that they made this mistake. They tried to make Captain Marvel just invincible and anything soft and kind sort of seemed to disappear. Whereas in Wonder Woman, you see a real three-dimensional character. And Lewis doesn't simply turn his girls into tomboys, saying, you know, they're, they're girls just pretending to be boys. They're just free to be who they want to be. Uh, the line that you put in your keynote was, compassionate, confident, and capable heroines like these, females who make their own choices and can lead as well as follow, are a distinguishing element of the Narnia stories. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I don't know how you argue against that. I mean, I'm not trying to make some sort of radical case that no one else sees. It seems, well, pretty obvious to me that that's the kind of characters that we're talking about. And so we've got to do this podcast because people are going to come across it. But if you're not trying to look for some sort of – this is a classic example of, of what I would call a bad English paper where someone finds some goofy line, maybe three words long – and it turns into an entire thesis for a whole novel that has no support anywhere else. You have to ignore pages and pages of counter relevant uh, evidence and turn this one line into this huge, all-encompassing way to look at things and squint and look through things through this line only that don't need to go through that and ignore other things. Yeah, compassionate, confident, and capable heroines. That's, that's the, the female protagonist we find in the Chronicles of Narnia. And you also noted that they don't all have the same vocation. Many of them become married. Helen, Aravis, and Ramandu's daughter. Uh, what was what was the, the name that Douglas Gresham gave her for the movie? Liliandel? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like yeah, that. She gets married. And, that, and, and, we're, and we're meant to think that's great, right? Yeah. And yet, Polly doesn't get married, and that's fine. Yeah, which I think is another stroke of genius. Yeah, we don't feel sorry for her. We say, oh, gosh, if only she'd got married. She's been so unfulfilled. You know, if they if they want to get married, they get married. If they don't want to get married, they, they it, it's, well, it seems, <laughs> I don't know the better word, but it, it seems rather progressive of Lewis to do that. And um, mm. again, it seems the exact kind of example that you'd think these kind of critics would applaud, but they just kind of ignore it. So that's that's kind of what happens. And why they ignore it, well, that's another whole story, isn't it? And a couple of other points that we've mentioned earlier, but they're worth emphasizing here that Lewis shows men and women being equally capable of good and evil. So you've got the White Witch and the Lady of the Green Kirtle on one side uh, for the for the bad females. Uh, but for the male baddies, you've got Miraz, Sepespian, Glozel, Eustace, Pug, Gumpus, Rabidash, Ginger Shift, and Uncle Andrew. So anybody is capable of good, or in this case, evil. And I would say that Actually, some of the most sexist remarks come from those bad characters. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, Mraz ridicules Glozel for believing old wives' fables. He accuses him of talking like a woman. He derides his senior advisors for their womanish counsels. I mean, those are really sexist, and they're said by the bad guy. And this is how you, you do it. If you think those behaviors are bad, you have the bad guy do it. 
so no one wants to emulate him. You don't want to be like the bad guy. It's kind of like betraying your brothers and sisters. You know, when I was little, we would play Narnia some, and nobody wanted to be the early Edmund who betrays the brothers and sisters because he's the bad guy. The later one is pretty good, but no one wants to play him at the start or be used to set the start because we don't want to be that bad guy, right? And uh, so we see we see these, you know, Miraz doing that. And then a lovely one, if you want to look really carefully, look at when Rillian is under the spell and sort of mad, you know. Uh, he's very sexist and patronizing. And that's how Lewis does the characterization. Here's how we can tell he's nuts and under the spell. And here's how when he comes to himself, right? Um, in the silver chair, he talks about how, he's, how they're going to suddenly pop up and take over Narnia, right? And Jill says, I don't think it's funny at all. I think you'll be a wicked tyrant. What, said the knight, the enchanted knight, still laughing and patting her head in a quite infuriating fashion. Is our little maid a deep politician? You know, he's he's so patronizing then. <laughs> and of course, once he comes out of the spell, he, he doesn't call her our little maid again. He's the exact opposite of that guy. So, you know, if you want to come out in a stance against sexism, you have the bad guys do it. And, and look at the Clormans, right? Women are treated as property there, right? Their dads tell them who they're going to marry. They don't want their opinions. They don't listen to them. Um, they're forced to marry against their will. And that's one of the reasons that Erebus wants to get to Narnia, where the good guys say no maid is made to marry against her will there. Another very, you know, I don't know, progressive stance. We keep using progressive. I don't want to use feminist because uh, there's so many different meanings for that. But it's a very progressive stance to say, yeah, nobody should be made to marry somebody they don't want to. But I would say probably the most sexist character in all of the Chronicles of Narnia is Uncle Andrew. It, it's this line in The Magician's Nephew, when he says, You must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women, and even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. Needless to say, he means himself. And later, he responds to something that Diggory says, and he says, well, well, I suppose that is a natural thing for a child to think, brought up among women as you have been. Yeah. And, and that's the exact sort of literary term that you and I take to say, yeah, the bad guy's saying this, which means that <laughs> Lewis, as an author, is saying this is bad. And any child reading that is going to say, yeah, that's bad. That's a bad position to take. Um, so like, like you say, when they have these sexist remarks, whether they're from good characters who are imperfect and sort of growing Characters who are under a spell or just bad characters like the Kalorman or uh, Miraz or uh, Uncle Andrew here. Lewis takes a very anti-sexist position, I would say. Yeah, and I'd agree. And so just to recap, the positive case for Lewis with regards to gender is that firstly, there are diverse skills among the female characters. But regardless, feminine things are not rejected. Uh, the, the women and the girls are called to different vocations, and that's fine. Some of the worst sexism is found among the bad characters, as you would hopefully expect, and Lewis shows that both men and women are equally capable of good and evil. And honestly, if you're actually going to count them up, there are more bad male characters than good characters. Yeah, and I'll just say perhaps just as there are in life, right? <laughs> that said, I've read reviews where somebody is all mad because Lewis has an evil villain, the White Witch, and she's female, and so he must be sexist. And here's what I don't like, is playing this sort of well, we have one character, so it must be. So you follow that line. He also must be racist because she's white. So he must be anti-white as well as anti-woman, right? And this is what I mean by consistent standards. 
It's and I've I've heard people on podcasts when they're criticizing his choice of gender or coloration of a character, but then a little bit later on they'll say, "Oh, but if it was flipped the other way around, it would be still racist or sexist." You have to have a consistent standard. You can't just say, "Well, because in this case she's female, then he has to be sexist," but she's bad and white. We're going to ignore that for the time being because that doesn't support my case for racism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine if Lewis was on here and he was asked of the Chronicles Narnia sexist and racist, he'd begin, as he often liked to, well, that depends on what you mean by sexist, right? <laughs> and if you count sexist as you've got uh, a character who's bad, who's a female, well, I've got some of those. <laughs> I've got just as many bad ones, uh, male ones. Yeah. So, And I've got female ones that are good. And... Oh, I'll give you the other one that drives me nuts is, is after they'll go through all this, they'll say, yeah, and guess what he was sexist about? What's that? He made Lucy too good. So now they're going to criticize Lucy as being portrayed unrealistically. He put her on a pedestal. He put women on a pedestal and doesn't treat them as real characters. And I said, did you not read anything with Jill? Holy smoke. She's about as ordinary. She's, she's the character most like me in some ways, just a very ordinary person, which makes, and she makes all sorts of ordinary everyday mistakes because she's tired and grumpy or, or he holds one up on a pedestal and the other one he portrays too negatively. Uh, you know, it's the consistent thing you're talking about. And as we now pivot and talk about the question of racism, you just mentioned the white witch. I think it's also worth pointing out that Lewis drew a lot of these characters from pre-existing literature. He didn't make up the White Witch out of nowhere. Hans Christian Andersen, we, we have a very similar figure that he is drawing in. So if you are going to level these charges against Lewis, you're going to have to start leveling, leveling them against all of his sources. Which brings us to the Kalorman. <laughs> uh, this season, we read The Horse and His Boy, and it is often claimed that this work in particular is Islamophobic and racist. And some people claim that it was unconscious, but others don't. They think that it was very purposeful. And I think my favorite example that you gave was from The Atlantic. Craig Easterbrook writes, The principal bad guys, the Kalormans, are unmistakably, unmistakably, I might add, Muslim stand-ins. I have three children, aged 6 to 12, and a few months ago I finished reading the Chronicles to them. Even as a fan, I must admit that certain passages made me wince. For example, the wicked dwarves ridicule the Kalormans as darkies. I skirted the word because I don't want it in my kids' heads. What do you make of these claims? No, that's a great one to read because it illustrates a bunch of other stuff, right? So first off, let's talk about how the Kalormans are unmistakably not Muslim stand-ins, <laughs> all right? So so here's the first first thing that you've got to go to. I'm going to go. The key, and, and look, I am an English professor. I'm not a theology teacher. But in my limited understanding, one of the key pillars of Islamic thought is there is no God but God. Allah is one God. They are as monotheistic as you could possibly be, right? And yet, when we go to Kalorman, we hear even the, the small, the sort of narrow slice of the Kalorman pie we look at, we hear about three different gods that they worship, right? There's Tash, of course, but uh, Erebus also mentions Azeroth. And this other, I don't know, semi-deity, Zardina, the lady of the night that she's making maidenly sacrifices to. I mean, a Muslim would, would, would call that blasphemy if you had three deities that you were giving some sort of worship to. So, so that's the opposite 
of any kind of, of Muslim identity. Uh, and then the other thing, the, the dwarfs call the Clermans darkies, and they certainly do. And, you know, that's certainly wrong. The dwar wicked dwarves do all sorts of wrong things, and they use racial slurs among them. And, and when he says, I skirted the word because I didn't want my in my kids' heads, I would say, well, what are you going to do when they hear words like that in the playground next week? I mean, I would have, you know, so I'm not telling people how to raise their kids, but I think I would use that opportunity to say, you hear that word? That is a bad word, kids. That's a word you should never use. And let's talk, let's just say some other bad words that you shouldn't use. I don't want to hear you using it. And who uses it here? These wicked dwarves. And what do they do three pages later? They shoot the talking horses to keep the battle even. These guys are bad and we don't want to be like them, do we? No. Um, so that's kind of where I would go with it. And speaking of you know, racial epithets, uh, when talking about the mixed race dwarves, Nickabrick, he says, I hate him. I hate him worse than the humans. And he calls Dr. Cornelius, one of my favorite characters, he calls him a half and halfer. And again, I, I would just think this is a perfect time to talk about very heavy issues, or at least very important issues, with your children. And here you have bad characters saying bad things. And I think that's a perfect time to talk about such things. Yeah. But I want to go back to the Islam thing, because it's one that really irritates yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Because there's, a, there's an irony in it. Because either these people who make such a claim, they're either ignorant of Islam, such that they think that the Kalormans can commit shirk, and that's okay. They can associate, associate partners with Allah. Or they're just really poor readers and don't actually read the text and somehow gloss over the fact that the Kalormans worship at least three gods. We're not even told that this is, these are the only three. Or the fact there's human sacrifices or pre-marriage rituals. But the other thing that irritates me about this is I think it's very symptomatic of a lot of the other criticisms of the Narnian Chronicles I've heard. And it's the same mistake every time. People insist on turning Narnia into a massive allegory. It's not an allegory. It is a supposal. What if the second person of the Trinity created this world of Narnia of talking beasts and wanted to go and redeem it? What would happen? That's what this is. It is not an allegory. Because as soon as you turn it into an allegory, it inevitably leads you to associating the more negative characters with some person or some group from our world. And therefore, any condemnation or any criticism of those, of those people will be then put into Lewis's mouth about how terrible they are. And the one last thing that always bugs me about this particular example in uh, The Horse and His Boy, if we were to look for a biblical parallel for what happens with Shasta, it's basically the Moses story. The fact that he's in danger as a child, uh, but that he's ultimately saved, drawn out of water, just like Moses, and ultimately goes to uh, win a great battle, a great victory for his people. And so if Shasta has a Moses backstory, that would make the Kalorman Egyptians. But this is my point. <laughs> as soon as you're going to start trying to say this is an allegory and this is what Lewis was thinking about, you end up with all kinds of problems. I listened to one podcast where somebody was criticizing Lewis for uh, making the Kalormans an empire. And they said, you know, he makes the Kalormans these bad empire, but he couldn't see the sins of his own British empire. I don't think Lewis was blind to that at all. <laughs> In fact, because he was Irish, he would have encountered some racism 
himself, not because of the color of his skin, but from the country he was from. Yeah, and it would have been easily to see some of the problems with the the uh, British Empire. Nothing personal here, my friend, because uh, no, they, okay. they they wanted to take over <laughs> Ireland. Ireland was one of the one of the many islands they took over. So yeah, I, I, people people say all sorts of things, and uh, this this might be a very good time to say, look about about Lewis, about racism, about sexism, and about all sorts of other things, and. You know, a lot of your listeners are, are quite sophisticated and read lots of stuff, and they really don't need too much help from you and me. But there are others who are maybe younger and haven't read or thought. And the answer is, if someone says something, uh, it may or may not be true. You need to think about it, look at it, and and look at the evidence, see why they're saying it. I'll, I'll say this, that, that one quote, to say they're unmistakably Muslim stand-ins, you know, how could he possibly say that other than it's very trendy to criticize someone for being Islamophobic right now. And that's one of the worst things you can say about somebody. And so maybe he jumps into that uh, without thinking too much uh, as, as it is about these other things to say, to call someone uh, anti, anti women. They don't call them anti men. Um, now look, the Kalorman lived to the South uh, of Narnia, right? And because they're, they lived to the South, they're, they're the uh, country that, that are their antagonists. And because they live to the South, they're in the sun more. That doesn't change anything. They're still the antagonists. And we have good and bad Kalorman. We have good and bad Narnians. We have good and bad trees, good and bad wolves, good and bad people from England, uh, which is Lewis's point, that no one in Lewis books are good or bad just because of their race or gender. And that's how it should be. Hmm. Some immutable characteristic. Yeah. And one other thing that, as you can tell, this one kind of irritates me because it reveals a kind of ignorance. If you've read The Horse and His Boy, you should realize that he is drawing from Arabian Nights. That is that is where all of this stuff is coming from. In that book, you also have people doing things like being turned into donkeys and a number of other things that you find in that book. So Lewis is just drawing from that source and pulling it into his story because he needs another country with its own distinct culture to A, be interesting, but B, to offset Narnia. And so he has to portray them in some way. And... I think one of his students had been rereading Arabian Nights, and that's what gave him the idea. Yeah, and, and I'll say Tolkien will do the same thing. He's going to have a, a group of people to the south of Gondor who are duped into fighting for Sauron, and Sam sees one and killed in front of him, and he wonders what lies brought him there, and if he wouldn't have rather just stayed at home. But yeah, they look a little different than the, the Gondorians, and, and certainly different than Hobbits, but they look different than uh, the writers of Rohan, because they live to the south. And, you know, the, I think it's pretty reasonable. Whether your enemies are Vikings and coming from the north, where they're going to be, you know, maybe blonder and lighter skinned, or they're coming from the south, mm -hmm. they're going to look different from you. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, you're racist. So, Yeah. And we see good and evil, as before, not based on gender. It's also not based on skin color, because you've got light-skinned antagonists like the White Witch, uh, early Edmund, when he was betraying his family for candy. Uh, you've got Miraz, Glozel, Sulpespian, many of the Telmarines. You've got Eustace initially. You've got the bullies at Experiment House, Governor Gumpus, Lord Barr, the Queen of the Underworld, uh, whoever it was that kidnapped Shasta, since he was also from Arkenland, and Uncle Andrew. So you've got all of those characters who are bad and they have lighter skin. And yet the two darkest skinned characters that we get to know best, Aravis and Emeth, these are really positive characters. And some people complain that Kalorman culture is just trashed by Lewis, but we actually do hear good things about it. 
Um, although we do, to be fair, hear a lot of negative stuff, but we're told that Tashban is a wonder. Uh, and you could actually even argue that most of the criticisms of Tashban aren't criticisms of the, the, its population, their culture or their race, but just the fact that it is a great city, whereas in Narnia, everything is far more rural. And like Tolkien, Lewis definitely had his own personal preferences on that score. Every so often, uh, people will, some of my students will want to write a paper on, a, on, a, on, a, on something we don't know very much about. And so, you know, my, my first point is, well, Lewis doesn't tell us, we don't get to know too many Chloramen very well, right? We get to know Erebus very well, and she's great. We get to know Ameth pretty well, and he's great. The other characters we don't know all that much about. Uh, Rabidash we know quite well, and he's not good, although he has a chance to reform. But um, all we do know is at the end of time, Aslan's country opens to, to, to Chloramen as well. And without that... Um, I think we'd be having a slightly different discussion here. But with that, the fact that these people, not just Emmeth, but the whole country has access to Aslan's country sort of takes care of that problem for me. And we also know that not all Narnians enter Aslan's country. Yeah, isn't that the whole point? Yeah. <laughs> and this shows that what Lewis cares about is the contents of someone's character, not the color of their skin. And we actually even see that clearly in Emmeth's name. It means truth. And by that, Lewis is showing us what he cares about. And he even has the example of a potential mixed-race marriage. Susan was thinking about marrying Rabidash. And there isn't the slightest hint that there was an issue over his skin or their future mixed-race children. The marriage was only called into question when they saw him changed. They, they saw the way he acted when he was back home. And the assessment is that we've now seen him for what he is. That is a most proud, bloody, luxurious, cruel, and self-pleasing tyrant. It's the content of his character that's the problem, not the color of his skin. Yeah, so, so that's exactly what is said. And look at what's not said, right? Truly, sister, says Edmund, I should have loved you the less if you had taken him, you know, as your husband. And he doesn't go down this, you know, because he's not a friend of Narnia. He's not a friend of Aslan. You know, they eat different food than us. What are your kids going to look like? What about the holidays? How are you going to celebrate? None of that. It's the <laughs> thing that you say. He's a most proud, bloody, luxurious, cruel, and self-serving tyrant. That's why, you know, brothers are often kind of critical of their, their sisters, boyfriends, and, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, fiancés. But he, 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 he draws the line. He has nothing to say about his race. It's, it's all based on his character. Now, one other thing that we should probably say about Narnia is it is one of the most diverse worlds in all of fiction. You know, you've got trees, dwarves, talking beasts, humans. Again, we, we see that it's, it's a very equal opportunity in terms of who is good and who is bad. Although you do see some indications in Prince Caspian that some creatures are assumed to be bad. Um, there's references to an ogre and a hag that could be uh, introduced to Caspian to join his side. And Caspian doesn't want them to, to join their side. Uh, whereas, you know, Nicobrick doesn't care. All he wants is power. Yeah, and to their credit, the people who want to talk about racism in Narnia often don't bring up these rather obscure one or two races in this imaginary land that are portrayed as not being redeemable, mm. right? Kind of like the orcs. Uh, yeah, kind of like the orcs, or even better, the Dementors in Harry Potter. Right there's there's this kind of being that doesn't seem redeemable. That's that's only bad. Now 
that's where we have to draw a line and said, look, they're saying nothing about anything in our world. In this imaginary world, we've got an imaginary race that seems to be soulless and irredeemable, that has no counterpart in our world. But it would also be kind of like somebody reading the Bible and complaining that there aren't any good demons. Yeah. And the answer is we don't hear too much about demons. Uh, it's possible that demons were given a choice at some point and they make a choice and whether they can undo that choice or not. I mean, again, this is a classic example of what do we have? A, ho a whole sentence there about hags and ogres <laughs> and, you know, to draw any kind of conclusion on a sentence uh, is you're building a, a big story out of on a very, very small foundation. I mean, take, take a look at your take a look at the line you read. We want none of that sort on our side. Right. What if what if that was mixed race dwarves? Right. Or what if it was uh, good, helpful Kalorman or, or, you know, fill in any of the, that sort. Then all of a sudden Lewis is in deep trouble. But he, he has a couple of imaginary races that are like the Dementors, not capable of redemption and are characterized, are, are just characterized by doing using the wrong methods for their their ends. Right. They're, 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 they don't care about means. They don't have any kind of. Uh, standards for we can't do that to get this thing accomplished. We, matter of fact, we are going to do this bad end means to get to our ends. So, mm -hmm. and that is his point throughout that book and in subsequent books about the means and the ends, and the ends do not justify the means. Uh, but also to circle back to what I mentioned before, he is drawing on very well established literary imagery. I don't think I've ever read a book where there was a good hag, and the only good ogre I can think of is Shrek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know, that, that isn't the story he wants to tell of, of, of a couple ogres who became good. I don't know. Uh, they could, but not in this story. That's not the story he's telling here. So to recap, uh, charges of Islamophobia and racism in Narnia. Firstly, the Kalormans have fundamental dissimilarities with Islam. The racial slurs typically come from the antagonists. They are not good characters. Good and evil is not based on skin color. Uh, the eternal destination of everybody seems to be up for grabs, as we see with Tashban being uh, connected to Aslan's country. We see that Lewis, no doubt, experienced some racism himself, being Irish, and that what Lewis cares about more than anything throughout the books, but particularly in The Horse and His Boy, and we see again in The Last Battle, is the content of someone's character, not an immutable trait like the color of their skin. Now, earlier, you gave the positive case for gender What's the positive case for race? Yeah, and of course, the biggest one is just the, the diversity of characters in Narnia, right? I mean, I've never counted how many different races mix and mingle in harmony there. All sorts of different uh, races, different sizes, shapes, colors, right? Narnia wouldn't be Narnia if it was all hedgehogs. I mean, that could be a story, but it's not this story, right? Um, and then, you know, one of the greatest ones comes when Dr. Cornelius shows up. And, you know, Nick of Bricks says, we got to get him out of here, this half and halfer, right? And I love this line. Caspian declares, this is my greatest friend. He was the savior of my life. And anyone who doesn't like his company can leave my army at once. What a stand. What a stand. I mean, picture somebody telling a racist joke or, or saying something bad about someone because of their race. And you say, hey, this guy's my friend. And if you don't like his company, then you get out of here because he's staying. I mean, it's a lovely moment. And of course, it never gets discussed by people who want to talk about racism in Narnia. Mm. 
And earlier I spoke about the potential mixed-race marriage between Susan and Rabadash, but in The Horse and His Boy, it actually ends with a mixed-race marriage of Kor and Aravis. And we're told that their mixed-race son, Ram the Great, becomes the most famous of all the kings of Arkenland. And Lewis wasn't compelled for them to marry at all. There was no reason that he had to put that in the story. No, they didn't have to get married. They didn't have to have a son. Quinn and Bree, they get married, but not to each other. Yeah, and... and the other thing I love about this is they do get married and he doesn't say a word about it. And he said, and they had a wonderful mixed race marriage and their mixed race <laughs> son was Ram the Great. He is, it's race is so non-important that he has, he, we have to go back and, oh my gosh, yeah, that was a mixed race marriage. Oh my gosh, they had a mixed race child who became the greatest king of Archenland, uh, which was not mixed race. We have to go back and do that because he wants to suggest it matters so little, right? So little. I got one other thing to read, and this is this one. Uh, Shasta comes into um, town. He sees the, uh, this group of people coming up, right? And it's going to be the Narnians, right? Instead of being grave and mysterious like the Clormans, they walked with a swing and let their arms and shoulders go free and chatted and laughed. One was whistling, and you could see they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly. I mean, there's another lovely thing he does. And, and we're going to talk a little bit later about if they make the movie, what they might do to mitigate criticism about this sort of thing. And I would, I would expand that scene. I would show the Narnians being friends with all sorts of Kalormans who wanted to be friends with them, laughing, talking, buying something. Here, have some tea with us. Oh, here, I brought you some chocolate from Narnia. <laughs> I mean, to expand that, that bit, because it's in there. It's, it's not like it's not in there. They're ready to be friends with anybody who wanted to be friendly. I think it'd be really funny, Edmund offering somebody some Turkish delight with, with a glint in his eye. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something well, like that. Well, well let's, let's turn to that question, because I've thought about this a lot, particularly since Netflix have bought all of the Chronicles of Narnia. First of all, if Lewis were writing The Horse and His Boy today, do you think he would have written it differently? You know, if he, if he had some modern sensibilities, would he have foreseen some of these criticisms and tried to avoid them even being brought up at all? Well, only in, like you say, the way he said certain things. Who was, by the way, a woman? Things that could possibly be misread. I don't think he would have felt, oh, I have to make this nutter woman headmaster mistress into a nutter man headmaster. I, I, I don't think he would have felt any compunction because he's already made it clear that being a nutter is, <laughs> you got your males, you got your female nutters, and you got the opposite. You got great men and great women who are very sane. But he might have written that a little differently. I'll tell you what he might have done differently. Yeah, look at that question. I went back and looked at Pauline Baines's drawings from Kalorman. And she, in particular, takes them straight out of sort of uh, Aladdin pictures, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they look exactly like the Arabian Nights. And there's no reason why they have to look exactly like the Arabian Nights. I mean, I think we're meant to think that they look different than the Narnians, but surely they wouldn't looked exactly like these earthly stories have to be. And so when we give them turbans and puffy pants and pointed shoes, we could make them really look otherworldly in their turbans and puffy pants and pointed shoes and not look like something from Aladdin. Hmm. I guess the other thing is I, I would show some of the poly, go ahead and uh, show some of the polytheism that's there. Uh, it's there, it's understated, but maybe show it so that Greg Easterbrook is not going to be too offended. He's going to say, <laughs> oh yeah, that is an Islam. Uh, so, so costumes, show the polytheism and, and maybe the architecture. Don't make, 
make it clear. Lewis doesn't say much about the architecture. Make it, don't make it look like a Middle Eastern city. Make it look like an otherworldly city. Because like you say, it's not an allegory for people from the Middle East. Or you could actually even be a little bit cheeky. Christianity is itself an Eastern religion. So maybe you could have some early Byzantine architecture. Yeah. But that, that actually gets me to my question about Netflix. If Netflix ever gets around to producing an adaptation of The Horse and His Boy, do you think they should tweak the setting of the Kalormin and Tashban? If so, I'm interested to know what you would suggest. Because how do you distinguish it from Narnia without mimicking some other culture from our world? That seems to be necessarily the palette from which you're going to end up drawing some ideas. And so it really doesn't matter what you choose. Somebody is going to be upset that you've drawn these particular elements from other cultures. Yeah, and that's exactly my point. Try and not make it look, make it look. You know, you know who does a pretty good job of depicting other cultures. I think is Star Trek. Just thinking that these guys go to all different worlds, and the people wear their hair mm-hmm. in crazy ways, and their houses look different, and their goblets and their drinks look different, and no one can complain that you're you're trying to make some group on Earth look different because it doesn't look like anything on Earth, and it and it need not be. So let, let's go backward. Narnia has a sort of an English feel to it because these people are all from England. I'm not really sure where those the Kalormans came from, right? I don't think they came from the Middle East. They just live south of Narnia and take on some of the things that a climate south of Narnia might. I would make everything else look quite different from architecture to clothes to food to music. And, and, and that's not taking any liberties with, with Lewis. I think it's taken a small liberty, as I mentioned, with Pauline Baines's drawings. Mm. But you do that and all of a sudden... It doesn't look like anybody that we know. So we're not criticizing anybody that we know. Yeah, I think your point about Star Trek is very well taken. Although I will say, even then, being a bit of a Trekkie myself, you often find people allegorizing Star Trek. And it's like, okay, well, this is clearly this sort of culture because they have one or two markings, uh, one or two features, which are similar to 21st century Earth. But I, I do I do think that that is probably the best way for for Netflix to do it. Do by and large keep the text the same, but I think be far more creative with the costumes, with the architecture, and you know enough fantasy worlds have their own languages, so they could even make up a language for the Kalorman, and so have them subtitled, so that there's minimal question about accents, although they will have to interact with the Narnians, of course, at some point, and, and make it as non-Arabic as possible, right? Make it, who knows, sounds like Elvish or something. I was looking at the back of Horse and His Boy, and they've got the tombs outside, right? And this is not a bad start, because I don't think those tombs where Shasta goes and meets Aslan as a cat look like anything I th- that makes me think of anything in the Middle East. They're just very Kalorman, uh, right? I don't know what mm. those things are. I definitely remember tombs being mentioned in Arabian Nights, but I can't remember if they're described. Yeah, and tombs are not the problem. I mean, because everybody could have tombs. Yes. You might want to, it's just how, how you're going to depict them, right? Surely they got to have that scene where Shasta is out there among the tombs. And now, like I say, make it, make it a very otherworldly kind of tomb, like I think Pauline Baines happened to do in this book, rather than some of the other pictures she drew. Mm. And I hope listeners who think that we're being a little a little aggressive against Narnia's detractors will see that you can still consider other people's sensibilities, but that doesn't mean that you have to change things radically in terms of the the substance and the essence of, of the story. 
we don't live in Lewis's era, and modern sensibilities are not what they were in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So there, there is some, there is some room for negotiation here, but we have to still come to the text honestly and look at what it actually says, and not come dragging our own baggage to it. Well, as we wrap up, any final thoughts? You, you'll get some veiled negative claims from people who are sort of pro-Lewis. They'll say, oh, you know, poor Lewis. He lived at this time where people were so unaware. So he was just a product of his times. And surely he wouldn't be so sexist or racist if he was brought up today. Well, that that does nothing for me. That, that excuse that someone's a product of their time doesn't bear much weight for me as, as though that's an excuse. And so I don't say, I don't worry about sexism or racism in Ernie because, well, Lewis was a product of his times and for his times he did pretty good. I think he was actually the opposite. He was very progressive about both those things. And, you know, this is just one of many uh, hot topics that people are going to get possibly in heated talks about. And I just want to encourage people to, you know, be very gentle um, and, and, and often maybe say, look, we may not agree on this, but here's why do here's why I would say this. What do you say about that? And possibly to step back and say, well, I don't find that convincing for me because, and I don't think that's too much of a, of a thing to say. Um, like I say, I don't, I don't know that many people are going to be convinced one way or the other, other than if you get to a close look at the text, and which I haven't really seen. I've not seen someone who thinks uh, Lewis was racist and sexist, who who does the kind of discussion we've done today for the past, you know, hour and 45 minutes and looks carefully at multiple, multiple, multiple uh, citations and looks at exactly what they say. Uh, perhaps this is part of a larger discussion, and that is to say, when you're going to claim that somebody is racist or sexist, what do you mean by it? What are you saying and why are you saying it? But but certainly people have something to say now to, to someone who has read the Philip Pullman or the J.K. Rowling claim that they can say, well, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Why do you say that? So, you know, in conclusion, I would say this is a good thing to talk about and and talk about with with people uh, and get other positions and talk sanely about, you know, Lewis and the Inklings model for us sometimes what it means to disagree without becoming disagreeable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those comments we read early seem bordering on the disagreeable side of things. And so wherever you come down on any of these topics, to go at it hammer and tongs, as Lewis would say, and to disagree but not being disagreeable is great practice for all of us. Couldn't agree more. Dr. Devin Brown, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. I hear the final call for drinks. So to wrap up, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, best place is probably my webpage uh, at asbury.edu. Uh, to look at the books I've written or to get one, my author page on Amazon is a good place to start. Thanks again to Dr. Brown for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Angela, Deborah One, Deborah Two, Marvin, Joelle, Thomas, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and enjoy some rational, calm, well-reasoned discussion. Good luck. For the rest of this month, we're going to be interviewing a number of authors about their books, Jason Baxter, Braxton Hunter, Justin Wiggins, 
And next month, we'll begin our final series of the season, where we'll be looking at Lewis's poetry. So many people have told me that Lewis's poetry wasn't very good, but I've been reading it over the past few months, and I have been pleasantly surprised. So please join us then, when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>